Hey, listeners of The Look Back, this is Keith, your host. Hey, today I have a surprise guest, a little off the beaten path, and it's none other than Alan Dershowitz, the famous lawyer, ex-Harvard professor, author, just a famous guy. I talk about it on the pod, but I thought I would share with you that uh, he reached out to me to join the pod, and I was flattered and said yes, but thought you should know that um, I agreed to do it because I just, you know, I like to talk to interesting people and if they're well-known, makes it more interesting. He wanted to talk about a certain case or two and I couldn't resist uh, diving in on some of the um, issues of the case. And I also couldn't um, avoid getting into some questions about the OJ case or the Trump situation. Uh, but we got into some really good conversation around things like civil liberties, the Constitution, uh, the threat to democracy. Anyways, it's off my normal path. I thought I would just say, hey, it should make a good listen, right? And uh, excuse the emergency alarm that went off in the middle of our interview. Um, it makes it unique all the more. Um, and as always, a heartfelt thanks for listening. Hey, give a like or comment or share, as I always ask, um, but never require. Um, and hope to catch up with you soon. Have a great day. The Look Back is honored to be joined by Alan Dershowitz. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Where am I finding you. you today? In New York City. Oh, beautiful. How is it there today? Beautiful. Beautiful. Oh, fantastic. Alan, it's a delight. You've had an amazing, prolific career, author, professor, scholar, and lawyer. You've taken on some major cases, some high-profile cases, some some controversial cases from OJ and the Dream Team to Jeffrey Epstein and Mike Tyson, Patty Hearst. Uh, I'm leaving out a bunch because uh, the list is quite long, but um, catch me up on what you're active on today or what you're working on these days. I'm working on a lot of um, matters. I'm 85 years old, so not as active as I used to be, but still trying my best. I'm, <clears throat> I'm very involved in the case of Keith Ranieri, which involves uh, serious accusations of the government tampering with evidence. And the courts have thus far refused to grant a hearing um, in which the uh, defendant can prove his claims. And if they prove to be true, they would show very serious violations of constitutional rights and due process. So that's a case I'm very uh, interested in, not only for purposes of the defendant himself, but but all Americans who could be subject to uh, evidence tampering, particularly in the age of AI, the risks of tampered evidence are greater than they've ever been in the past. And this is a good case to look into whether or not the FBI or other government agents may have tampered with uh, the metadata surrounding a photograph, which was crucial to the conviction of Keith Ranieri. Okay, so let's Let's backtrack so my audience is aware. Harry <clears throat> was kind of the considered the cult leader of this Nexium uh, group that started out sort of like in multi-level marketing and then became in all kinds of other things. And, you know, you could tell me if I'm wrong, but cult was a very popular and acceptable word. It became an HBO TV show. It had everything to do with, you know, sex, drugs and uh, Hollywood and and then even some very, you know, sketchy things like branding women. And, and he's under arrest. He was um, 
arrested and convicted of of multiple crimes. So so help me. Did I get that right? You did. And the major piece of evidence that was used against them was a photograph of a woman who the government alleged was underage and the defendants argued was no. She was above the age of consent and consented to everything. And uh, that became a crucial issue. And the metadata uh, that was introduced by the government uh, was designed to prove that she was underage. But if the metadata was tampered with, then uh, the jury got the wrong information and may very well have come to the wrong uh, verdict. And that's why uh, the defense is seeking a hearing on the alleged tampering and uh, a hearing to determine whether a, a new trial is warranted. So it, it seems to me you have a pretty good handle on, um, shall we call it, civil liberties, and you feel that's the area that you're focused on, the infringement or the tampering of the evidence, and you're quite sure the FBI actually did the tampering? I'm interested in the civil liberties issues, as I always am. Right. What we have is expert testimony from people who have a lot of experience, including within the FBI, that suggests, if their testimony is believed, that there was tampering. And we want an opportunity to prove that in court, to establish a record, to persuade the judge or to persuade an appellate court that um, there is not only smoke here, but there is a fire of, uh, of tampering. And uh, all we want is an opportunity to prove it. And if the government is right, they should be welcoming that opportunity and should be joining us in a request to have a complete and full analysis of the metadata and how it came to be and what the FBI might or might not have done. These are issues that should be of great concern to the Justice Department and the FBI itself. Now, and it's interesting, I'm involved in the technology world, and a lot of my guests on this podcast are in the technology world. When you're speaking of metadata, is it metadata related to the photo and where it came from and how it's dated and things like how that? How it's dated. It's uh, how it's dated. Mm -hmm. And um, I mentioned before, we now live in an age where so much tampering is possible. Um, just the other day, uh, we saw information that was in the front page of the New York Times about famous uh, entertainers who've had their uh, faces misused and put in places where they, they haven't been or supporting products that they know nothing about. And the, the courts have to lean over backwards to make sure that Americans are not victimized by the misuse of technology. Technology is wonderful, but in the hands of people who have an agenda, uh, it can be misused to produce an injustice. And that's right. the application in this case. I think you're referring to what's popularly referred to as deep fakes. And uh, but there's but you're right. There's a, a, a ton of ways to misuse the technology to to uh, support one's objectives. What got you interested in this case? Is it the is it the the topic of it? What did Keith Ranieri and his defense team? Or, uh, he's obviously, I think, looking for a new trial then, correct? Where does this stand right he now? Is. He's looking for he's looking for a fair trial, which only valid evidence is presented. Um, my whole career has been. Whoops! This is the national alert. Yeah, it's, is that funny that happened during our podcast? I knew I this was going to happen. My phone. <laughs> That's funny. Well, that'll make it a an extra inter interesting discussion. We'll talk about the government tampering with our phones now.
No, that's for a good cause. I became interested in this case because all of my career has been the relationship between law and science. I was called the and professor at Harvard because all my courses were law and medicine, law and psychiatry, law and, you know, you name it. Gotcha. So law and science has been a big concern of mine and the misuse of science, also civil liberties, due process and the Constitution. So all of those factors figure into this case. And that's why I became involved in it. Technology will be a greenfield for your and for a while. Um, I, so what do you hope happens here? Let's say the FBI or the or the uh, judge and is allowed to, allows the uh, evidence and there's a retrial. Well, at a retrial, there would be no evidence of the photograph because it would have been proved to have been doctored. Uh, and if the um, information, the photograph doesn't come in, then this becomes a very, very different case of some women saying, you know, they wanted this, they agreed to it. We love this guy. You know, being uh, a charismatic leader of something that some people call a cult is not itself a crime. What was the smoking gun in this case was a photograph of somebody under the age of consent. And if that is eliminated from the case, the entire case takes on a different perspective and the likelihood of an acquittal increases dramatically. But there were other things besides the statutory claim, correct? Well, there were many things. Uh, the question is, uh, A, were they crimes? B, were they believed by the jury? And, and C, did the photograph of the underage person tip the balance and incline the jury to convict without regard to any of the other evidence? These are all serious and important issues. Okay. Where does this get heard? Is this heard at an appellate level um, in New York? Well, it's um, going through the courts right now. Um, the usual rule is you try it first in the district court, then you go to the uh, Court of Appeals, and then you go to the United States Supreme Court. Um, and we're in the middle of that process uh, right now. And I'm hoping it will be resolved by having a hearing. And then after the hearing, a court will have the opportunity to look at the entire record of the case, to listen to former FBI agents, to listen to uh, technical experts, to listen to people who have had long experience in uh, the metadata of photographs. And then it'll be an informed decision. Right now, it's not an informed decision. It's just based on what the government claims. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. we Americans... Uh, Trust but verify, uh, and we want to verify at this point. So it's interesting. This brings up the whole question. I mean, the the justice system and and judges that we talk about from the Supreme Court on, on down are are more um, criticized today, um, more questioned for ethical, <clears throat> moral, political views and biases than ever before. What do you think happens in a case like this, and overall um, in the uh, objectivity of the justice system? Well, I think there have been a lot of cases where objectivity has been rightly questioned and where the public um, expresses views that go back to the founding when Thomas Jefferson uh, was very critical of judges and uh, didn't want to subject important issues to this, quote, the conscience of judges. Um, and uh, uh, judges have to maintain their respect through their actions. And uh, when they deny hearings and and close cases in the face of very serious allegations, that doesn't help them with their 
claims uh, that they're just neutral, objective uh, justice doers. It, 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 it inclines people to believe, you know, maybe judges do have a, a point of view and that they allow their point of view to influence their, their judgment. You know, we all hope that, um, that uh, judging is neutral. You know, go back to the Bible, the, the, the Jewish Bible instructs judges, thou shalt not recognize faces. Uh, you can't do justice based on who the person is. You have to do justice with a blindfold on uh, without regard to the political party or the race or the popularity or the sexual attitudes of, of people. You have to ask the question, did the government prove beyond a reasonable doubt that statutory crimes occurred without any prejudicial evidence coming in? And unless a case meets that standard, it shouldn't it shouldn't be allowed to stand. So do you feel you're going to get um, the judge granting the evidentiary hearing? Well, I never will predict what judges will do, but I'm hoping that there'll be a point in the process where judges will say to themselves, look, if the government didn't do anything wrong, they have nothing to hide. Let's clear the air here. Let's make sure that the government isn't uh, falsely accused. And if the government is truthfully accused, everybody has a stake. In exposing that, so I'm I'm hoping that judges will come to that conclusion, as I and many others have already. Right, and this you've seen this in precedent a million times, probably. What? Um, well, maybe maybe a few hundred times, but I've seen it a lot. Yeah, right. maybe a dream team reference. Well, our dream team was anything but a dream team in the OJ case. It was more of a nightmare team. Nobody got along. I was the only one to get along with everybody. But uh, mostly there was a lot of bickering. But the end result uh, was something that certainly the client approved of, although many in the American public didn't. Yeah, that's interesting. So at the end of the day, this is called the Look Back podcast. When you look back on the OJ case, uh, what would is there anything you personally would have done differently or did you make the right decision participating with the dream team? Well, I did make the right decision. I think that the one important decision that we made, and it was a very controversial one, was not to allow OJ to take the witness stand and keep the focus on the police misconduct rather than on his own history and background. And when he did take the stand in the civil case, he lost the civil case. So uh, I think we were proved, uh, we were proved correct. Are you, uh, you open to comment on whether you, you you felt he was innocent or guilty? I can only tell you a story about it. So when Benjamin Netanyahu was made prime minister of Israel, I've known him for years. So he called yeah. my wife and my daughter and me to come visit him. And we did. And he takes me into his little private room and he says, I have a question I'm dying to ask you. I thought it may be about Iran or about the Palestinians. He said, did OJ do it? I said, Mr. Prime Minister, I have a question I've always been dying to ask you. Does Israel have nuclear weapons? And he said, Alan, you know, I can't tell you that. And I said, Bibi, you know, I can't tell you that. So we each have our secrets. Um, I'm not allowed to disclose what I feel about uh, the guilt or innocence of somebody like O.J. Simpson. Is that is that really, is that like a um, a, a legal requirement to not yeah. speak? Yeah, you have confidentiality. Uh, yeah. I can tell you this. Um, he has asserted his innocence in every context from the very beginning in his conversations with lawyers. That I can disclose. It's an amazing thing. Um, moving off the Keith Raniere thing, I, I mean, I'm very curious. You also have a lot of thoughts about Donald Trump. I mean, you I do, book, right? You wrote a book about uh, Get Trump, wasn't that it? Um, it's and, called and, Get Trump, and the yeah. title of the book is not original with me. It yeah. comes from Letitia James, 
the person who's now prosecuting him for fraud, um, that was her campaign pledge to get Trump. She said, if you elect me, I'll get Trump. And basically she said, and if I don't get Trump, don't vote for me again. So she has a political stake in making sure she gets Trump. And uh, I'm not a Trump supporter myself politically. I'm a you know, liberal Democrat who has always voted for the Democratic candidate for president. I'm not predicting what my vote will be at any time in the future, but that's my past history. And uh, yet I support his rights as I support the rights of all Americans under the Constitution to a fair and equal justice system, which I don't think he's getting. So on that point, um, this is a person who's being prosecuted for um, legal actions that seem like he tried to overthrow an election or tried to overthrow a government or an insurrection. Their case is going on all over the place now in New York and Georgia and D.C. What what was the are you saying these are all politically motivated and there's no basis of evidence or is your claim that it's just it's just too personalized and politicized and it should be we should wait till after the election or what's your view on that from a legal and harvard professor uh, uh, perspective well i never speak from a harvard perspective i speak okay. on my own um i i think that if his name were not donald trump and if he had not contested the last presidential election and were he not running for president none of these cases would have been brought so this is targeted attempts to uh prevent Trump from running and winning again. Uh, the, the, the tactic is to try to get as many down and dirty convictions as possible before the election uh, with the knowledge that some of them will be reversed on appeal, but that will be too late. Uh, so I do think this is an attempt to um, influence the election. And I want Donald Trump to lose fair and square uh, <laughs> without him having any complaint about what happened. And so if he's allowed to run, I think he will lose. Um, and the more and more he is seen as the victim of injustice, the stronger his base gets and the more likely it is he'll be the candidate and perhaps even the next president, certainly not with my help, but that may be the outcome and the result of all of these efforts. Americans have a real sense of fairness. And when they think somebody is being treated unfairly, they tend to rally around them. Yeah, interesting point. But you also suggest then there's there's some sort of strategy from above that's orchestrating these various legal actions, or maybe you just think it's coincidental or um, accident. I don't know. Um, is that what you're suggesting? I don't think there's I don't think there's a conspiracy. I do think there's parallel interests um, in getting him convicted before the election, um, and mostly it's been engineered by by Democrats. Um, and um, and and by anti-Trump Republicans as well. And the goal is the same, but uh, the means may be very different. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so yeah. I don't think that there was a meeting one night somewhere uh, in the White House where it was decided to do this. No, I think there are independent actors that have the same goal and use the same or similar tactics. Yeah, and similar, <laughs> similarly, Alan, wouldn't you say that Hunter Biden might be under the same type of, of attack. Yes, I do think that is, if his name weren't Hunter Biden and his father weren't president, uh, they never would have been going after him on this flimsy gun charge or <laughs> the other tax charges. So I think we're seeing weaponization on both sides, uh, tit for tat. 
And in my book, Get Trump, I predicted that. I predicted that um, each side would use the other side's overreactions as an excuse for themselves overreacting. And it's funny, too, you're suggesting really that um, there are bad strategies on both sides. <laughs> I agree. So, I there are bad strategies on both sides, and I think the loser are the American people. How do we turn things around, it, it, it was starting, I guess, from our justice system, because we know we can't fix politics. <laughs> so how do you fix the justice system? There's a lot of lack of confidence, lack of faith, some things that are falling apart. Um, and I won't even call out any names. It's just one of those things, um, you know, the, the taking contributions, perhaps. Is that one thing, the disclosing of uh, gifts and things like that? Um, what, what are your thoughts? Well, that? Yeah. That was the problem 30 years ago. There was a lot of financial corruption 50 years ago. People were taking money. I think money is less at the core of it now than ideology. I think people are more ideological. Um, people actually think that Donald Trump is the equivalent of, of Adolf Hitler, and anybody who represented him is the equivalent of Goebbels or Goering. Mm. Um, not the equivalent, not, not like John Adams, who defended the people who were accused of the Boston Massacre. Um, I think Americans have to always opt for a fair justice system. Without a fair justice system, we are on the road to a banana republic. In my podcast, The Dirt Show, which is on every three days a week, <clears throat> Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at 5.30, I award bananas, and we're up to six bananas on a scale of 10 to the banana republic. I hope we don't get the seven, but uh, we're getting there. We're getting there. And you have uh, the American public doesn't like it. Do you have a way for us to lessen the number of bananas? <laughs> Do you have a constructive sure. thought relative to um, increasing the uh, regaining our confidence with our Justice Department? Yeah, I mean, we need better people. We need to elect better people. Uh, we need to honor those who support civil liberties, even if you disagree with the results. Um, but we're not doing that. We're moving in the wrong direction. My next book um, uh, is called uh, The New McCarthyism. And the thesis is that it's worse than the old McCarthyism. Because the old McCarthyism looked backwards. It was a thing of the past. The new McCarthyism is young people who want to deny their political opponents free speech, due process, fairness, etc. So um, I think we're going in the wrong direction. And I write my books and I appear on podcasts like this uh, one uh, in order to try to help change the direction a little bit. Who are the new McCarthyists in your mind? Oh, I think the left. Um, people on the left are the new McCarthyites, uh, the people who want to deny um, uh, speakers the right to speak. Uh, many of them are in colleges and universities, uh, prominent professors, um, prominent scholars. They're leading the campaign to undo the Constitution in the name of getting Trump. Who I'm trying to think, would we recognize in terms of names? I mean, I don't think you're referring to people like AOC or Bernie Sanders. Who are you referring to? Well, I am referring to AOC, and I am referring to some people in the squad uh, who don't care about civil liberties. I'm also referring to my former colleague, Lawrence Tribe, um, who always construes the Constitution to come out his way I ideologically. I'm also referring to, uh, um, you know, others who people don't know about. Uh, but uh, it has become a mantra of the hard left that the end justifies the means. And anything is permissible if 
it ends up by getting Trump and preventing him from becoming the next president, even if it means suspending the Constitution or weakening the Constitution. That's a price worth paying, they say, in order to get Trump. I disagree. Okay, that's a contentious point for sure. Hey, so I know I've taken a bunch of your time and I don't want to keep you too much longer, but it, it has to be asked you, with regards to these cases you've taken, not taken, any regrets with with any of the... Sure. The I mean, my, it's, it's kind of fun. My regret huh? is having taken the Jeffrey Epstein case because it resulted in me being falsely accused of right. something I didn't do. Fortunately, the woman who accused me has now said after eight years, oh, I may have uh, mistaken it for somebody else. Um, and so that that's over as far as I'm concerned. But um, that's a case I wish I hadn't taken because it really did hurt my family uh, while that accusation was still out there. And fortunately, it's uh, now now uh, she admits she may have made a mistake in identifying me. So uh, that was the one case I, I, re I regret having taken. Yeah, th those are tough when they deal with with you know, underage. And I mean, that's that gets everybody's emotions on on edge. But they have to be true. If they're not true, it's, it, you know, then nobody nobody should make judgments based on things that are categorically absolutely uh, false, which was the case okay. uh, with me from the day I was accused. I presented evidence and made it clear that uh, it wasn't true. And, you know, finally, finally, that result has been achieved. Yeah. Interesting. So at the end, do you think Trump is going to uh, get his chance to run for office or is he going to get derailed or? No, he'll run. He'll run for office. Uh, what we don't know is whether he'll win. He'll get the nomination. And these prosecutions are not going to stop him from running. Um, you can run for president even from prison. I don't think he's going to prison, but he'll run. The question is, will he win? And I don't think Nostradamus at this point could predict that. So I'm not going to try. Okay, I was wondering though, from the standpoint of, does he make some sort of out of court settlement that he won't run if all? No, this no, that's not him? Donald Trump. That's not Donald Trump. He'll never do that. It's probably a pedestrian view that that would happen because it has to go through all the legal. It uh, happens with a lot of people, but that's not Donald Trump. He he would never do that. Okay, Alan, uh, what a pleasure catching up with you. Speaking of you, I'll be much more interested, as I'm sure my audience will, following the. Uh, next case with next steps with the Nexium case, but also yeah, yeah. Cases. Keep on that case. That's a very in interesting and important case. It's important for all Americans. You know the question of our civil liberties and yeah. uh, due process, the Constitution. That's certainly uh, yeah. that, that, that's that's been your hallmark. Yeah, and don't think of it as this is a case involving Keith Raniere. Think of it. This is a case that could involve you and your your nephew, your uncle, your friend. Um, if anybody can tamper with evidence against someone, they can tamper with evidence against you as well. So make sure you understand this case involves you as well. Oh, excellent point. Thanks for clarifying. Hey, I'm sure. um, amazing. Uh, keep doing the great work that you're doing and uh, the fight that you're fighting. And thanks for joining the Look Back. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Be well. Thanks for listening to The Look Back. We do appreciate your support, welcome any feedback, and would love it if you would subscribe to this podcast and even consider sharing it with some of your friends. For more information and other cool info, check us out at newmanmediastudios.com.